0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. we be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be working in this chapter for the next couple weeks. <clears throat> and I entitled this, Individually Members of One Another, which comes right out of the text, but I think it captures the essence of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, a little bit of background on this chapter Apparently, during their meetings, the Corinthian believers were given to excess, and some of them were speaking in uh, prophetic words, speaking in tongues, these angelic languages, and apparently they were doing this to the extent that it was actually alienating visitors who had come for the very first time and see this outrageous behavior. And um, Paul is confronting this and saying, as you go to your meetings, you need to think about how you can use your spiritual gifts in order to serve and love others. And so he outlines the purpose for giving spiritual gifts. He starts in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, which really I think is um, kind of the capstone statement for this chapter. For we are all baptized by one Spirit... Into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. We talked last week about how the New Testament gives us these really radical statements about equality, not only along socioeconomic lines, not only along racial lines, but also as far as gender. And you see this right here in this passage. But he says that we were all baptized into one spirit, and specifically that he baptizes us into one body. And, um, <clears throat> you know, this concept of baptism, it's sort of strange to us. We mentioned how whenever you hear the word baptism, if you grew up in the church, that your mind instantly is drawn to water baptism. And that can take different forms, you know, either you get dunked in a tank or. You know, as a baby, you have you know a priest or a pastor sprinkling water on the baby's face um, and irritating it. <laughs> and um, but this word "baptize" actually it's a general word that means it's a verb to put into, and so context determines whether it's talking about water or anything else. And so an example would be you know. I took my French dip sandwich and I baptized it into au jus, right? In the same way, he's saying that God baptized or placed us into what he calls the body of Christ. And um, he's alluding to the fact that we are mystically united with one another. Theologians use this to describe the connection that we have not only with Christ, but also with one another. That there is not only this vertical dimension to our union with God, but also a horizontal union with one another. Those who are also united with Christ. The Bible teaches that the moment we actually receive Christ, where we ask God for His forgiveness, on the basis of what Jesus has done, that God actually gives us His Holy Spirit and unites us to Christ. And so this union, this permanent union, also extends to other believers as well. And so we have profound unity with one another because of our commonality we share in the Spirit. And we see, for example, in Romans 12, verse 4-5, through 5, that Paul sort of envisions us as being... Sort of like a human body says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we too who are many are uh, one in body in Christ and individually members of one another. So he's essentially saying that when God calls you and gives you the spirit, that he Places you specifically in the spiritual community in which you're a part of, and that he wants you to play a very specific role in that context. That you have a very specific part to play in the functioning of what he calls the body of Christ. And I think as we unpack that, that gives what we're doing tremendous significance. You know, a lot of times when you go to churches, it, the thought crosses your mind, what am I getting out of this? Am I getting the blessing? Am I, are people serving and loving me the way that I want? And yet, the New Testament actually confronts us with something totally different, where God says, when you come to be a part of your spiritual community, when I place you in the body of Christ, the question shouldn't be, who's going to serve and love me? The question is, how can I love and serve others? specifically with the gifts that God has given me. And like a human body, the body of Christ contains both unity and diversity, which to me as a a brand new Christian believer, that was very appealing. Because I love the fact that I was part of a community, that I was connected with people, that I was building a relationship with, uh, you know, friends on a deep level. And I like the fact that I was a part of something bigger than myself, And yet, there was also this fear that immersing myself in community, that my individuality would be lost in this sea of people. And yet, the concept that God has placed us in the body of Christ with a very specific role to play, one that is crucial to the functioning of the body of Christ, gives us not only diversity, but unity. That... We get to play our unique role as individuals, but that we get to be a part of God's bigger work, which we also crave. Now, when we talk about different models of church, you know, there's what you might call the institutional church model. And this is what I think most of us are familiar with in the Western church. You know, in the institutional model, you have God, obviously, who then uh, gives... Directives and leadership to the clergy, which comes from the Greek word "klēros," which simply means heritage. A lot of times in uh, or in most churches, having the role of pastor is something that you get appointed to uh, based on you know a diocese that you're a part of, and then the clergy and the staff then do the ministry, serving all of the laity. Which comes from the Greek word leos, just, which just simply means people. And so it's a very hierarchical system, model of how the church is, is uh, governed. So you have God at the head, who then works through the clergy, you know, uh, maybe a staff of 100 people, depending on the size of the church. And they are the ones responsible to serve and love the people in the church. Whether that be hundreds or thousands of people. And so you can see why this model would inherently develop this selfish point of view among the members, among the laity. Because I'm here to be served. I'm looking to see how I can get my blessing this week. I'm looking to see if I can get uh, those love feelings. from the people who should be serving and loving me, providing me counsel and healing, with my problems. You know, in most churches, lay people may volunteer to be ushers, maybe to place flowers on the altar, or maybe even mow the lawn. So you know, there's there are places for the uh, the common person to be able to serve in more menial tasks. Um. You know, they could even lead a home group as long as they have to follow a script. A lot of times you can lead a small group in a church, but usually you have to follow a very rigid uh, plan that contains discussion questions, and everything's really laid out for you. And so it's very formalistic or formulaic. Also, you know, lay people, they can pray for people, belong to committees and give financially. But they're certainly not competent to teach Scripture, counsel people with their problems, or lead their own groups creatively. There's a model that you know the, the clergy lays out for these you know, small group leaders, and they need to follow that to a T. And so you think to yourself, okay, as a person who maybe is... Managing lots of people at work or maybe uh, you have a very complicated uh, profession or maybe you had to get a master's degree or even a Ph.D. And then you go to church and what they tell you is the extent to which you can serve is maybe to mow the lawn occasionally. That's not going to be very motivating or very satisfying. Or maybe, you know, you can lead a discussion but we have these Questions that we have crafted and we really don't want you to deviate from that. There's not going to be a lot of motivation or incentive to want to jump in on that kind of work to serve God when we feel like these tasks are so menial that they're trivial at best. You know, it's not something you want to really give your heart to when you feel like this is not even challenging. Why would I care about this? On the other hand, you have the organic model where the bible describes us as an organism, a human body. And you know, at the top there you have Christ as the head as indicated by Ephesians 5. And then you have all the little globules of people spread everywhere, right? And it's very diverse and interspersed sprinkle into this org- organic structure are leaders whom God has raised up among the people. And you know, it's very interesting because in the in the New Testament model, leaders are not appointed. They're recognized. And that's why we're very careful when we talk about raising up leaders that we use the language of God has shown through this person's work and the love that they have for the people around them and their character that God is raising them up into spiritual leaders. And so there's credibility because the people around them have eyes on them and and can can verify, this person is a servant. I can trust this person. And so the body then is comprised of unique members who are playing their role in the overall growth of the body of Christ. You know, the servant leaders of the body serve to equip individuals uh, to serve one another and others. So not just to Love one another. This isn't like, you know, a holy huddle where we're just all sitting around patting each other on the back and being like, oh, uh, yeah, let me help you out, brother. You know, this is also about loving and serving others, those people outside of our community. After all, God wants us to bring the message and love of Christ to those outside of the body. Look at what Ephesians 4, verse 12 and 13 says. An intriguing passage. Paul says, it was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints, which is just a church word for believers, for the work of ministry or service, that is, to build up the body of Christ. And so he gives us a model, a picture of how our spiritual community should be organized. That the leadership shouldn't be playing this hierarchy or hierarchical role where you know they are delivering the directives and serving uh, all the members. But instead, he says that the top leadership of the church should invest themselves in equipping or um, teaching people about God's truth and, and helping them to be able to serve others so that they're competent to be able to carry out the work of ministry and ultimately that the body of Christ might be built up. And so that's, you know, the the vision that Paul gives to us is that the top leadership of the church shouldn't involve themselves in, you know, doing all these menial tasks. They should be investing in people and developing them so that they can carry out the service that God wants. You know, the institutional model leaves much to be desired for those looking to serve God on a really high level. And yet, the organic model that we have here provides endless challenges. I mean, anyone uh, that you encounter who's been leading God for a while, they'll tell you it's, it's incredibly challenging. It's very difficult to help people grow with God, to help lead a group of people. It's something you have to give your entire heart to. And the biblical model calls for individual members playing significant roles in the body of Christ. And so God gives each person a vision for serving him in a crucial way in the body of Christ. And I think that's inspiring. That's something that we can get excited about, that we get to play a role. You know, we live in a culture today where people are just uh, groping around for significance And every time they attain some sort of achievement, there's this sense that I'm not sure that my life really matters aside from the next accomplishment that I face in life. And yet God promises that within our spiritual community that we can have a huge impact on people. And God enables us to do this by distributing spiritual gifts to each person in the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of our time, but I think it'd be good for us to do a little comparing and contrasting, do a little chart here. You know, when you look at the organic model, it's always changing, it's dynamic. You know, you think about a human body, um, it's always adapting to its environment, right? Um, it's, it's dynamic, it's growing, it's changing. Whereas when you look at the institutional model, it's always based on what we've always done you know, there there isn't really this desire to see where the Spirit is actually leading us. We're looking back to what was the precedent? What did we do before as a guide, as really the way that we need to go about doing things in the future? And so you'll see some of these churches doing things that they were doing 200 years ago and still trying to apply it today. And the question is, why are we doing this? And you're like... That's what we've always done. That's a bad answer. Especially when you're trying to make Christ relevant to our culture. You know, with the institutional model, you know, decisions are based on rules or bureaucracy or it's based on some sort of policy. And so it's very, it's, it's very much a rigid thing. How, what do we do in this situation? Well, let's see what rules we have in place to help guide us. And... Uh, you know, Jesus was very critical of the religious teachers of his day who were obsessed with this uh, list of rules that they had constructed on top of the Old Testament law so that you could nail down very specifically what does it look like to follow the Sabbath in detail? And so you can see that churches can, can veer off in this direction where it's all about rules and policies. Whereas the organic model, it's based on relationships, connections that we have with one another. And that's really the dominant way that we go about selecting leadership. And also, uh, as we make decisions that impact lots of people, we have to think about the connections, the organic links that exist within the body of Christ. In the institutional model, you know, leadership is strictly an office or an appointment. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church. You know, a lot of times there's like this uh, rotation where every two or three years you'll get a new lead pastor to come in. And the people are just sitting there wondering, okay, who's it going to be this time? And so they're sitting there questioning, well, why should I listen to you? What makes you qualified uh, to follow spiritually? Whereas in the organic model, leadership is Homegrown. You know, you see this person develop from day one. You know, you may, maybe you were there when they first came to Christ, and so you can see the spiritual progress and growth that they've made over years, and you can see the servant heart that they have shown and exhibited in serving and loving the people around them, and that builds trust. You know, um, you know, I lead as an elder in this church, and uh, it's kind of a weird thing because you know. I remember walking into a a venue like this as a 19-year-old, spent a couple years in jail. I was out on parole, and uh, I remember walking through the doors and just being like, this is amazing. This is what I've been looking for the whole time. And noticing that what we had here was totally different than the institutional church that I had been to growing up. Now, to imagine myself twenty years later, doing what I'm doing now, I would have just laughed in your face. Like, there's no way that you know these people would be stupid enough to choose somebody like me to play a role like that. And yet, you know, uh, that's how God works. Is He? He takes people who uh, have developed within the body of Christ, and He identifies them. He marks them out. He calls them. To lead at a higher level. It's not an appointment. Organic, uh, the organic model shows growth through multiplication. As people are serving and loving one another and trying to multiply the life of Christ in others, you see that, you know, a healthy body will continue to grow. Whereas in the institutional model, you may see some growth through addition, you know, usually through attracting people by having an awesome worship service, you know, with a band, with, uh, you know, hipster people up front playing their ac- acoustic instruments and uh, trying to draw, you know, all of the, the, the people into their service, getting, you know, the, the good-looking, young, dynamic pastor to get up there and basically, you know lay down this fiery sermon. It's going to leave you feeling blessed for the rest of the week. And, you know, people may come to that. People may join the church. But in a lot of cases, you see that there's just stagnation. It's really sad, too, when you, when you go to some of these churches that have been around a long time. It's filled with people in their 60s and 70s, and hardly any people are coming around and investigating Christianity. Christianity. In the organic model, you know, it withers without the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We all recognize that this is not our doing, that we need to rely on God's power as the impelling force driving the work that He's doing here on earth, whereas in the institutional model, it remains whether God withdraws His Spirit's power. Warren Wearsby states it poignantly. He says, if God took the Holy Spirit out of this world, much of what the church is doing would go right on and nobody would even know the difference. There's a lot of truth to that. And that's the nature of an institution. It, it continues on even after those who, who founded that organization or that institution who were spiritually minded are gone. Let's go back to our passage here. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So he says, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. In other words, God gives each and every individual in the body of Christ, every believer with the Spirit, a spiritual gift, at least one, if not more, in some cases. And he says that he does this for the common good. And he's doing this to confront, again, the Corinthians who were using these spiritual gifts as a way to look down on one another and say, I'm better than you because I have this gift here. I can speak in tongues. And what, what can you do? Nothing. And so Paul points out, he says, these gifts are not about showing off or acting like you're better than other people to create divisions, Instead, God gave them for the common good. They're there to serve other people. He says in verse 8, To to one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. Another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. So he says, first of all, that some are given the Spirit of wisdom or the gift of wisdom. I think this is a little bit different than knowledge. You know, uh, wisdom implies that you are able to take knowledge and apply it in a very specific way. And, you know, I've met people who I believe are gifted in wisdom. You'll come to them with a problem and say, you know, I've been really struggling with this thing. And what they can do is they can take something from God's written word and apply it in a way that uh, just really opens up your eyes to, you know, the problem that you're having. And um, he also says that others have the gift of knowledge. This is uh, the ability to recognize and understand Scripture in a supernatural way. I've I've encountered people like this. You know, a lot of times they're reading passages that I have read probably 15 different times, and they're extracting new insights from it that I had never even heard of before. And those people have the gift of knowledge. He also says in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. So he says others have the gift of faith. And I think this is probably referring to somebody who has a gift of prayer, where they pray bold prayers or feel this uh, strong inclination to pray for something that maybe we would be, most people would be afraid to pray for. And God answers their prayers. He says to others, the gifts of healing. Now, if you you examine the Greek words he uses here, he actually uses the plural for both gifts and healing. So it literally should be gifts of healings. And what I think most uh, Bible teachers would say is that these gifts of healings refer to a variety of different things that require healing in the body of Christ. And that may, that may be physical healing. I've seen, you know, in my lifetime, maybe one or two authentic healings. Um, but there are all types of maladies that we face. It's not just physical. You know, for some of us, we have, um, you know, psychological problems because of our upbringing maybe trauma that we've experienced. And so maybe what we're referring to, what Paul is referring to here is somebody who has the gift of counseling where they can like sit down with somebody, listen to their problem and help sort of untangle the the mess in their lives. Or, you know, it may be talking about people who are able to heal spiritual oppression and bondage that people are under. You know, Jesus, when he would go around healing people, he would heal not only people physically, but he would also heal people spiritually. He says in verse 10, to another, miraculous powers, another prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another, the interpretation of tongues. So he says here, prophecy... And, you know, when we think of prophecy, we think of somebody who, like, can predict the future. And, um, you know, in the Old Testament, they used to do that occasionally. But predominantly, these prophets would speak authoritatively to the people and would usually call God's people back to following Him instead of following these false gods. And so... The person with the gift of prophecy has this unique ability to speak in such a way that brings God's conviction down. You know, people walk away whenever they hear them speak just, just cut to the heart, feeling as if God was actually speaking directly to them. I remember um, my friend was described how he taught a meeting like this and uh, afterward, this woman with this distraught look on, his, on her face beelined toward him and confronted him. And the first thing she said was, Who told you? And he's like, What are you talking about? Who are you? <laughs> She's like, I know you talked to some of my friends. I mean, they're, they, they're, you're clearly describing the problem that I had told them about two days ago. And he was just like, I don't know you and I don't know your friends. And, you know, she walked away just dumbfounded. And, you know, what, what he walked away with was that, you know, God was using him to speak directly to her issue. And I've had that happen before where I'm sitting in the crowd and, you know, someone is speaking or somebody may, may share something, a comment after a meeting And it just cuts to the heart. I mean, it's almost like God is directly speaking to me through this person. And there's this this abiding sense that God is, is showing me a word of correction and love through this person. Now, we should be clear that this should not be taken as God's word, that people are not speaking authoritatively on God's behalf. And Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 28, Let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. So we should never be like, well, this person has the gift of prophecy, so whatever they say is on par with what God says. It always needs to to adhere to what God has already written. Otherwise, we should be suspicious. He says to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And this is what the Corinthians were totally into. Um, We know that there is the gift of speaking other languages. Uh, And and this is a supernatural ability. We're not talking about a knack for picking up other languages like foreign languages. But in Acts chapter 2, for example, when Peter got up and spoke in front of this multitude of people, he started speaking and all of the people in the crowd were hearing the message of Christ in their own language. And so... Paul might be referring to that. But there are also these so-called angelic languages, tongues. And uh, he makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, where he says, uh, you know, do do you speak in tongues of men or of angels? Apparently, God gives uh, some individuals an ability to speak in this angelic language. And... um, I don't know if you've ever been to different denominations, but some really prize this idea of speaking in tongues. And their whole meeting, uh, or most of their meeting, is comprised of people speaking in tongues and babbling. I remember uh, me and my buddy, uh, you know, we uh, went to... Um, this church and they just were speaking in tongues and you couldn't understand what anybody was saying. It was just total chaos. Somebody actually tried to like slay me in the spirit where, you know, they knock you down. And uh, I was resistant. I didn't go down. (laughs) And so um, apparently, you know, people who have this gift though, uh, they do it, they, they speak in this way as a way to build themselves up. Um, It's actually one of the only gifts that's described in the New Testament that's specifically for our own personal edification or to build us up spiritually. Then he says to still another, the interpretation of tongues. So there are some people who are actually able to understand this angelic language. This is kind of funky, you know, especially if you're a new person here. You're like, what? Are you talking about here? I have to admit, you know, I was pretty skeptical too when I first read this or even heard about it, but uh, a number of years ago, I remember going to uh, Dallas, Texas to go and visit a few churches out there, and uh, we went and visited this punk rock Pentecostal church that was like in a strip mall, right? And so we're in there, and we're hanging out, sort of observing... The meeting, and at one point the pastor says, "Anybody who wants to get healed, stand up." And you know the the music is playing real loud, and and people are raising their hands, and you know it's it's very people were whipped up emotionally. And there is this one woman in the in the back row in a wheelchair, and you know she is uh, trying to raise herself up, and you know we're. We're sitting there watching this like, oh, my gosh, this is, uh, I'm nervous for her. (laughs) And, um, you know, she's uh, gingerly trying to get herself up, and she finally gets to her feet and then falls over. And I just gasped. I was just like, oh, my gosh. She didn't seem hurt or anything like that, but she was just laying there and started babbling in these tongues. Tongues. And so I was just like, wow, this, this is an unusual experience. I've never seen anything like this before. Years later, me and my buddy were hanging out, and uh, he was there in the back row with me. And I was like, do you remember that chick in the wheelchair who tried to get up and then fell down and was like babbling and stuff? That was weird, wasn't it? And he's like, yeah, that was pretty weird. But he's like, um, you know what was even weirder than that? I was like, what? He's like, I understood what she was saying perfectly. And he's like, I've never told anybody about that except for you. And uh, I was like, well, what what was she saying? And he was like, "Uh, you know, I don't remember everything she said, but she was saying something to the extent of, you know, praise God or something like that. And he's like a pretty, like, skeptical kind of guy, right? He didn't grow up in a Christian home or he didn't have that background at all. Like, if you you were to be like, oh, this person has the gift of interpreting tongues, I mean, he would be like the last person you would pick in a crowd. Anyway, so, verse 11, and these are the works of the one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. And so God distributes them. It's his will to distribute these gifts to specific individuals. And so it's his sovereign choice to do this. Now, skipping down to 27 through uh, 31, he says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. So he kind of repeats some of the same giftings here. But the ones that are unique are, first of all, he says, apostles and It's a little confusing because we're familiar with the apostles in the New Testament, capital A apostles, and these were comprised of the 12 apostles. And yet we also know that there were other apostles with a capital A in the New Testament church. Um, You know, this word means literally sent forth. And so these are people whom God has commissioned specifically to, to go out into the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 through 7, Paul says, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the 12, the original 12 disciples. After that, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to to James, and then to all of the apostles. So that distinguishes the 12 disciples, who are also apostles, from other apostles as well. Or what about when Jesus says this in Revelation 2.2, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This was written around eighty ninety, So it was very clear who the 12 apostles were. There, There was no mistaking these guys and yet, apparently there were some masquerading themselves, disguising themselves as capital A apostles of whom Paul was one. And so, apparently there are these capital A apostles whom Jesus gave specific authority to write down the New Testament Scripture. And one of the qualifications was that they actually saw the risen Christ. But it was a necessary and yet insufficient condition because there were obviously 500 people who had seen the risen Christ and yet not all of them were apostles. But we also know that there is the gift of apostleship. Little a. And this is maybe where, you know, God gifts certain individuals with uh, this entrepreneurial spirit to be able to go out and start new ventures for Christ. Either starting an, uh, an organization, maybe going to a different country to spread the love of Christ, or maybe even a different city in the United States. And so you see these people who have this this drive to go out from their present context and to go and start new things for Christ. Then you have teachers, which are a little bit different than prophets. They're similar in that, you know, teachers can speak prophetically where they can actually say something that will pierce your heart as if God was actually speaking directly to you. But a lot of times teachers have this ability to take incredibly complex material and, and distill it down to something understandable. Or they're able to take a passage that's very familiar and illuminate it in a way that you'd never seen before. And so that's one of the ways to distinguish whether someone has the gift of teaching. Those who are able to help others, this probably refers to those who are able to serve practically. Um, These are people who work a lot of times behind the scenes and enjoy doing that. you know, really without these individuals with the gift of helps, you know, the, the body of Christ wouldn't run too well. Um, then you have the gift of administration, which uh, it's interesting, Paul uses a word that is sometimes used to describe a shipmaster, a captain, or a steersman of a, or a pilot. And so this is the kind of person who's able to manage or direct large groups of people, but it's not the gift of leadership. It's more like administration, management. It's really the ability to organize with spiritual priorities. And, you know, this is the kind of person who's able to uh, manage, you know, buildings, properties, um, different divisions within an organization. And they do so with God's spiritual priorities in mind that they're focused not on is this going to be more work for me or is this even my job? Um, They're thinking, how can we get behind serving and loving people? Because that's really what this is all about. You know, in the world, somebody who is an administrator, you know, if they are overseeing buildings or properties, their thought is how can we protect these properties from these people who want to destroy it? We're messing everything up and we have to clean up after them constantly. Whereas uh, an administrator who has a godly perspective, who has the gift of administration, realizes, um, you know, these buildings, they're here for people to mess up and to, you know, make a huge mess, and I'm here to clean it up. I'm going to do that uh, in order to provide uh, a service. To the body of Christ, and so you know, you, uh, people who have the gift of administration, um, they don't feel you know the people around them don't feel controlled. Uh, there's a sense that you know this this person is thinking about the bigger picture and God's values. And then you have these other these other lists too, like Romans twelve. I mean, I'm, we're not going to go through all of them, but there are some unique ones here in Romans twelve, verse six through eight. He says we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So the gift of encouragement, some people have this. Like uh, Barnabas in the New Testament. Uh, He was uh, gifted in encouragement. In fact, that was his nickname. And, you know, a well-timed word of encouragement can be a life-changing thing. I remember the first uh, year that I was around, I was sharing my story of how I actually met Christ at a baptism, and this guy walks up to me and he says, "He's like, dude, when you were telling your story, like people were just riveted to to the things you were saying." And he was like, "I wonder if like God may have gifted you with uh, some sort of speaking gift." whether that be teaching or prophecy. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's my first time ever doing public speaking. But, you know, that set me on this course to try and see if I could develop that gift. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you ask this guy today, you remember saying that to Conrad, you know, 20 years ago? He'd probably be like, what are you talking about? And yet that word of encouragement altered my life. And we can have the same impact on others. Those contributing to the needs of others, those uh, people who have the gift of giving generously. I know people like this, you know, where God seems to just give them more and more money and they just seem to pump it out more and more to, you know, God's kingdom. They're, They're very generous with their gifts. Then you have the gift of leadership. You know, this is the kind of person who is able to inspire people. You know, they're the kind of people who can can uh, give people a vision for what they can do. And so a lot of times you know, you'll know you have a group that's not maybe doing that great and then you have somebody with the gift of leadership come in and they're able to fire people's imagination, get them excited about serving God in a new way. And then finally he says those showing mercy. And this could be a variety of things. This could be somebody who uh, feels deep compassion for people who are coming from broken families and lives, Uh, but it also could be people who are burdened for relief and development among poor people. Finally, he says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the Greek construction in all of those questions requires a no. He says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. Okay, a few final words about gifts. First of all, we shouldn't feel jealous over other people's giftedness. It's easy to compare ourselves to others and say, now if I had what she has, things would be great. Then I can make a real contribution. What does that suggest? It suggests that, first of all, God blew it, that he doesn't understand what you need in order to serve And so I think we should avoid jealousy because, you know, God has given each and every one of us a unique contribution to make. And so it's not really helpful for us to look to our left and right and to think, you know, is my contribution bigger than this other person? Because, you know, if you weren't around or if the person next to you wasn't around, I mean, there would be a huge hole in the body of Christ. Secondly, we shouldn't use our lack of spiritual gifting in a certain area as an excuse to serve. Well, you know, I'm not really good at administration, so I'm just not going to try. I'm not really good at gifted in help, so I'm not going to help move (laughs) or clean up. Um, God calls on us to serve at every level, even though we may not be gifted in that way. And so, um, you know, you may feel like, well, I'm not a gifted teacher, and so I'm just not going to teach or even try. Well, God wants each and every one of us to play a teaching role, whether we're gifted or not. Whether that means you're doing this, you know, in front of hundreds of people or if you're doing it individually, one-on-one, as you're trying to instruct people in what Christ teaches. All right, so how do you discover your gifts? First of all, pray about it. Ask God to reveal it to you. And you know this is—it's going to take time to develop this. Secondly, develop close friendships. A lot of the gifts that we describe require relationships. You know, if you look at the breakdown of each of those, um, you know, most of the time it's these are leadership gifts, speaking gifts, and service gifts as three general categories. And so, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have relationships with one another, that we utilize our gifting in the context of a community. And so we need to develop close friendships. Third, get equipped. You know, how would you ever know that you have the gift of knowledge or that maybe you have a teaching gift unless you learn how to interpret the Bible in an expert way? i mean it's it's going to it's going to require time and effort to learn what the Bible says, so you need to get equipped also you need to watch for opportunities to serve you 'll be surprised you know maybe God has gifted you in a certain way, but if you 're reluctant to try something because maybe you don't think you're gifted at it, then you 'll never figure out that you're gifted in that specific area and I think that's uh pertinent to us, especially you know our culture today where there's this belief that gifting is a static thing. You're either gifted at something or you're not. And so, you know, our our parents, our coaches, our teachers have been pumping us with this idea, oh, you're so gifted at this one thing. And so we excel at it. We give our heart to that. But then when we try something and we fail at it the first time, we're like, well, I'm just not gifted at it. So I'm not going to try that again. And so we need to watch for opportunities to serve and seize them whenever they come up. Finally, don't obsess over discovering your spiritual gifts. Some of us feel like, well, I can't really serve until I figure that out. It may take years. And so um, if Paul really thought this was important enough for us to, you know, uh, go on a, a voyage to discover our spiritual gifts, he would have said it, and he doesn't in the New Testament. And that's why, you know, I remember taking a spiritual gifts test that we got from, like, another church and filling it out. And it said stuff like, uh, you're gifted in compassion. Um, I occasionally feel compassion. (laughs) But um, if you know me very well, that's not, like, a primary gifting of mine. And so, you know, after... Getting those results, I'm just like, I don't know about these tests. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's based on what you really want to be, not what other people are identifying. And so I think, you know, as you're serving people in your community, over time, people are going to say, I notice that, you know, you have this inclination to be able to, to, to do this, or I sense that whenever you do this thing, that people are really impacted by that. And so that's how you develop your spiritual gift as you serve and love people over time. All right, why don't we uh, just pray, and then uh, we can hang out afterwards. It's a privilege to be able to serve you, Lord, and um, thanks that our significance comes from you, not on the basis of what we have done, and um, we thank you, too, that you sovereignly place us in the body of Christ. That's an awesome thought, that it's not a mistake that uh, you've surrounded us with uh, people who we really love and usually annoy us a lot, too, um, that you've done that because uh, you want to refine our character and you want to teach us how to love people sacrificially. And so I pray that um, as we um, try to flourish in our spiritual communities, in our our local bodies, that um, you would uh, help us identify our spiritual gifting and uh, make us um, effective members In the body of Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.